This is Africa Digest. Welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, always giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and uh, we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, and I'm in studio with Jwalani Tulo, Tracy Bungard, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Toppled Sudan President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir appears in court to answer corruption charges. An extraordinary session starts the Democratic Republic of Congo's National Assembly to inaugurate the country's new government. In economics, a power failure which has affected businesses, hospitals and households in Cameroon's capital Yaoundé has entered its third week. And lastly in sport, Morocco to host uh, some of South Africa's top aquatics talent when the swimming program of the 12th All-Africa Games gets underway in Rabat. 17.02 Central African Time, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here's Jwala Nitula with your latest news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Sudan's deposed President Omar Bashir will be back in court in the capital Khartoum on Saturday for a trial on corruption charges. He appeared in court earlier today. Al Bashir was ousted in April after months of protests, bringing to an end his nearly 30 years in power. The BBC's Mary Harper has the story. Dressed in white robes and a turban, Mr. Al-Bashir was kept in a cage in the courtroom. He made no comment during the session. An investigator told the court that Mr. Al-Bashir had admitted to receiving $90 million in cash from the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. As well as the corruption indictment, Mr. Al-Bashir faces charges of incitement and involvement in the killing of demonstrators who protested for months against his rule. Authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo have confirmed a new case of the deadly Ebola virus in the remote militia-controlled town of Walikale, hundreds of kilometers away from where previous cases near the border with Uganda and Rwanda occurred. The health ministry has also confirmed a third case of Ebola in the South Kivu region. The first two cases in South Kivu province were a mother and her child. The woman has since died. Fears are growing over the spread of the disease as the latest case in Walikale Kale lies about 200 kilometers west of Goma and much further away from the epicenter of the epidemic in Butemo and Beni. At least 19 people have been killed when a fuel truck exploded after losing control and ramming into three cars in western Uganda on Sunday. Flames from the blast tore through at least 25 shops nearby. Authorities say nine bodies were retrieved from the crash site and transported to a nearby health centre for further post-mortem analysis and DNA profiling. All victims died later from their wounds. The accident occurred at a small trading centre on the highway between the capital Kampala and Kasese a town near the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. The United States has recorded 21 new cases of measles last week. This is a 1.8% increase, taking the total cases for this year to 1,203 in the worst outbreak since 1992. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said it had recorded cases of the highly contagious and sometimes deadly disease in 30 states as of mid-August.
And finally, there have been clashes between police and protesters in the Indian uh, in the Indonesian province of West Papua, where angry crowds earlier set fire to a local parliament building. Alleged police abuse against ethnic Papuan students uh, angered the protesters. There has been a simmering separatist movement in the country for decades, and the Indonesian security forces have often been accused of rights abuses. The BBC's Catherine Davies has the story. Television footage shows protesters throwing rocks and chasing police who retaliate with tear gas. Smoke rises from burning tyres. The trigger appears to have been the mass detention of Papuan students in East Java for allegedly destroying an Indonesian flag. Local media reports say police stormed a dormitory on Saturday using racist language as they did so. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. From Khartoum comes a report that toppled Sudan President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir has appeared in court to answer corruption charges. His appearance in court came at a time when six civilians and five military officials are preparing to be sworn in in a new transitional government. James Shimanula reports. Al-Bashir, who ruled Sudan for 30 years before he was toppled in April this year, was brought to a Khartoum court under heavy security. Dressed in white robes and a turban, Al-Bashir was in a cage. Judicial sources in Khartoum say Al-Bashir was informed about the charges preferred against him by the country's chief prosecutor. It is alleged that he was found in illegal possession of foreign currency and accepting gifts in an unofficial manner from Middle Eastern countries. The countries include Saudi Arabia, which according to the charges gave El-Bashir 90 million United States dollars. It is also alleged that El-Bashir benefited from exporting gold to Dubai without paying any local taxes and managing foreign currency earnings running into hundreds of millions of dollars independently of Sudan's central bank. El-Bashir made no comment on the charges. His case will come up for mention before the end of next week. He was represented by 95 Sudanese lawyers. Explaining the significance of El-Bashir's standing trial on corruption charges, Jonathan Mangua, a Khartoum-based expert on Sudan, said, Very significant that Bashir is coming to trial. However, we have to be very cautious because the very fact that they are charging Bashir only with the charge of being found with large amounts of money really frustrates some who complain that he was culpable for major human rights abuses, massive corruption, and generally that he ran the country to the ground. Shedding light on the 48-hour delay in the unveiling of Sudan's sovereign council, Mangua had this to say. The postponement of the naming of the sovereign council, apparently because of some divisions uh, within various actors, including the opposition, also signals that a lot of work lies ahead. Do you think that uh, the 95 charges of possessing money illegally is actually a charge that can be trusted, given that uh, the National Criminal Court in The Hague wanted El-Bashir to be sent to Netherlands to stand a trial. Do you believe charges are genuine? I think, unfortunately, the lesson we draw from Egypt is that we have to lean on the side of being pessimistic and quite cautious about whether this is a genuine trial. I think that uh, what we saw in Egypt was that uh, a performer trial was organized for Hosni Mubarak. He was eventually released, and the very people that um, had taken office on the side of the opposition, such as Mohammed Morsi, ended up behind bars and, in fact, dying in prison. Today, Mubarak is a free man. So I think we have to be cautious, although, of course, we at the same time underline that it was a very significant achievement getting Bashir out of power. It might be a short trial. It's also it's still a significant milestone. Looking at um, 
the military coming to rule for a couple of months and then civilian government to come and then the post of uh, prime minister which al-bashir abolished in 1989 is to be in place what do you make out of uh, these developments i think what is important is that uh, this continues to be a balancing act between an opposition coalition that has enormous support on the street and a military council that is not fully willing to seat power they only agreed to sign this deal under enormous external pressure and what is very crucial is that that pressure including from the african union should continue the african union that expert mangua is referring to as well as the united nations have been at the forefront of pushing peace to prevail in sudan since omar hassan ahmed el bashir was toppled in april this year following a series of demonstrations that resulted in the killing of more than 300 people in the capital Khartoum and in other parts of the country. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. An extraordinary session starts this Monday at the Democratic Republic of Congo's National Assembly in order to inaugurate the country's new government. The Prime Minister's office has announced... The so long expected government might be released any time this week as the suggestion that has been harmonized. Jean Nobamweze reports from Kinshasa. The extraordinary session has been called while members of parliament were busy spending their holidays in their strongholds. The National Assembly Speaker Janine Mabunda then called them to interrupt their holidays and come back here in Kinshasa in order to inaugurate the government as it might be released any time this week. Patrick Muyaya is an MP from the Common Front for the Congo. It's an extraordinary session as previously announced because you know uh, we are awaiting the coming government. I think this extraordinary session was requested by the President Tshisekedi. The main point we're going to talk about is the, the inauguration of the new government. So we can take the time to make some of discussion to fix some parliamentary issue, but the main subject will be the inauguration of the government. The extraordinary session will take two weeks in order to allow MPs not only inaugurate the new government but also discuss about other important matters for the benefit of the Democratic Republic of Congo's people. But this might be very disturbed by candidates who were initially declared to have won parliamentary elections before they could be invalidated by the same constitutional court that declared them as MPs before. All of them have come together in an association and have announced that they will be attending this extraordinary session, although they are not allowed to. Jean-Marie Kabengera is the association coordinator. MPs are determined to sit according to the constitutional court's ruling to which no appeal is allowed and have realized that there is no legal obstacles. That's why we stopped our holidays to come and attend this extraordinary session to inaugurate the Ilungamba government to be shortly released. The constitutional court is the highest judiciary institution here in the Democratic Republic of Congo and it's only MPs who have been recognized by this court who can be allowed in. That's indeed what this common front for the Congo's MP Patrick Muyaya told the Channel Africa. The Constitutional Court published the final list of member of parliament. It's this list was sent to the National Assembly and those who can attend this extraordinary session must be in that list because in Congo the Constitutional Court is the letter which can confirm who was elected or not. And for those colleagues who have been invalidated, they are certainly in a political action. I'm not sure they will be considered as empty anymore because the Constitutional Court ability to decide who's going to sit in Parliament for the five years make his decision already. The National Assembly's session to inaugurate Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilungamba's government has come while people here are already tired of waiting for the government to be released.
And according to this analyst from the University of Kinshasa, people have lost patience and believe there is nothing good to expect. John Smith Yancey. What is happening to the National Assembly? I think that uh, even though they publish the government, nothing will change. Because since they started talking that they will uh, give the government to the nail, never is changing. Even though they give it, never will change. It seems like they are joking with people. Nothing will change. Even though the government, they are talking about government, we know what is happening in our country. They don't have the heart for the population. That's the problem. It will be difficult for government to build this country correctly or to work good for the Congolese people. They were looking for the power, but now they got in their hands. But they have to do something to show people that they've got the law for this country. They have to work out for the Congolese people. That's what I can say. Members of parliament are meeting here from this Monday, August 19th up to September 7th. This session is only for the National Assembly and not for the Senate. Jean-Noël Bamoise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on black economic empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Economic activity, hospitals, communication and household businesses are at a standstill in in Cameroon capital, Yaoundé, as an unprecedented power failure that has plunged most neighbourhoods into darkness enters the third week. Cameroon government has ordered its electricity company to reinstate supply in seven days, but the company says it needs at least three months to repair its equipment that caught fire. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. This loud noise from a standby generator is unusual in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé. But for the past two weeks, many locals have become familiar with it. The power supply disappeared on August 4th, the day a fire ripped through the city's main power station, destroying much of the equipment and leaving more than one million people without electricity. Food kept in the fridge may spoil, your equipment get destroyed, but you don't know, you can even go to bed and there's a snake there you will not even see because of darkness. You, in fact, when there's darkness, there's total confusion. Every day we have light problems. It's not only here. If we don't do something, it will continue to other places. The investment program for the power sector had been suspended for a very long time due to the economic reform program Cameroon New from 1988. The second reason is that the generation system is based on hydropower. Water supply reduces. Henry Nda, manager of Divine Finance, a bank in Yaoundé, now relies on the generator to keep the lights on and computers running. But this source of power is unreliable because at times fuel stations cannot supply enough gasoline to keep it going. We cannot adequately operate we use the generator and it goes off and it is actually it is way negatively on us and even our customers our members keep complaining the power outage has paralyzed businesses crippled hospitals affected the water supply and forced people to dispose of huge quantities of perishable goods radio and tv stations cannot have regular broadcasts Godlove Ndifonta, a researcher, says even the internet supply is no longer regular. It is horrible. I am on my mission almost 24 on 24, 
preparing my projects and uh, responding to mirrors from my partners. I have to go to where there are generators uh, in order to pay 500 francs to charge your machine or to charge your phone per hour. Cameroon's Minister of Water and Energy Resources, Gaston Elundu Esomba, says the government is taking steps to replace all of the damaged equipment and will import parts from abroad as needed. As from the end of December and early January, we're supposed to have a new generation injected into our network, but there is no gas in the pipes, so much such that the engines cannot be fired actually. This gives us a shortfall of 216 megawatts. Secondly, the government some time ago went into an emergency project to be able to build power plants. These plants ran last year, but since December, they all went dry for lack of fuel. There's a lack of gas. There's a lack of fuel in the emergency plants by the government that is from the government. We simply encourage them to be able to help us too by reducing their consumption, trying to put out lights in areas where they are not inside, not using all equipments which are not very necessary. Communication Minister and Government Spokesperson René Emmanuel Sadi says power is being rationed and urged people in neighborhoods without electricity to be patient. The government wishes to load the patients understanding and civic sense showcased by the inhabitants of the capital city instructions have been given to INEO to provide a general calendar of the rationing of our supply to the public of the city of Yaoundé. Authorities have not identified the cause of the August 4th fire although they refuted newspaper reports of sabotage. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. Cameroon. Very interesting situation happening uh, all the way in Cap in Cameroon at the moment. Uh, I'm pretty sure that a lot of us would not be able to survive without electricity for an entire three weeks. And they're saying that it's not going to be an easy road either. They say that uh, still another three months to go. Wow. And we complain about a couple of hours here in South Africa when it comes to load shedding. Skills transfer and greater interaction between the private sector authorities and skilled fraud investigators will become increasingly crucial to, uh, to combat corporate fraud. This is according to Christo Sneeman, National Director of Forensic Services at Mazars, a global audit accounting and consulting group in South Africa, and Vice President of the International Association of Financial Crime Investigators Western Cape Chapter, following the completion of a series of seminars hosted by the IAFCI in Johannesburg in Cape Town, South Africa. To tell us more about the need for skills transfer around the fraud prevention and detection in the workplace, Christo Sneeman talks to Channel Africa's Lebuch. If you talk about corporate fraud, I mean, this is, this is fraud that happens internally within businesses, um, companies, organizations. We can talk about a staff member in a business that commits fraud. He works in the accounting department and um, he submits fraudulent transactions and, and payments. He falsifies invoices, um, manipulates uh, transaction records and thereby committing fraud. So, in essence, that is, if I talk about corporate fraud, that is is what we can say is fraud. But 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 there's various aspects of fraud. You know, it, it manifests in various forms. But if if I talk about corporate fraud, you know, mainly we investigate uh, we, we, where I work in in Mazars, we mainly investigate individuals that commit fraud mm-hmm. within organisations, and then. Companies uh, incur huge, huge losses. Okay, now talk to us about how better networking can limit fraud losses. What is important for us is to, for me, it's, it's very important to to have good connections within uh, the, the lines of law enforcement with attorneys, um, the prosecutors. To give you an example, um, last week, last week we had a we had a very successful case in the commercial court in Belleville where this, our suspect was uh, sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. Um, she received a five-year suspended sentence. She also received three years correctional supervision. But what, what is most important about this is the fact that we managed to recover all the funds that she defrauded from her client, 4.6 million rand. You know, when we do investigations, it's important for us to act promptly, you know, um, have a good relationship with our clients. You know, I know 
who in the police I can contact to help me to investigate the matter. We can swiftly do, do the prosecution and then obviously make sure that we attach the assets or the funds that, that's been defrauded. We've also started, I'm also the Vice President for the International Association of Financial Crime Investigators in the Western Cape, and we've also started a forum four years ago where we invite people from um, various uh, spheres within the uh, prosecution fraternity, private investigators, um, cyber law experts, attorneys, policemen, uh, state advocates, auditors from companies, and we get together on a monthly basis to discuss various aspects of fraud. And thereby we, we build a very good network amongst each other so that if we do investigations that we can quickly assist each other and and get advice from each other. Now, why is there a need for more skills transfer around fraud prevention and detection? That is very important level. Um, and um, because I'm also speaking, being a previous uh, uh, policeman in, in South Africa, I also investigated crime within the commercial branch of the African Police Services. And I understand that, you know, to investigate a case of fraud, sometimes very complex of nature, and, and it, is, it needs a, a lot of attention to detail. And you need to understand, you know, the elements of fraud, you need to, need to do, understand how to do the investigation, how to take affidavits, interview the suspects, compile the forensic report, the case docket, so that it can go to court and you can prosecute the suspect and you can go and give evidence. And that's not something that you just learn overnight. So... What we want to try and do is, is that skills transfer, a lot of our experienced investigators that has left the police, we want to see that we can transfer those skills that we have learned over the years to the new investigators doing, doing, this, doing this work. So, because in such a way, you can learn how to investigate fraud in more in a practical manner to um, transfer the skills and see, you know, and, and help the new investigators within the African Police Services so that they can better uh, investigate uh, um, their fraud cases. We've also, last week, we also held a forum in Johannesburg where uh, General Godfrey Labia was also present, and he also requested, you know, that we from the private sector, we make an effort to transfer our skills to the new investigators. And one of the ways we we're going to do it is we want to set up more conferences, we want to set up more forums where we can practic- uh, practically discuss the cases that we've investigated and invite people, uh, investigators from the, the law enforcement. And lastly, before I let you go, how can businesses prevent and detect fraud? Well, there's a, there's a couple of basic steps that businesses can do, and no, I don't want to elaborate too, too, too much on this, but first and foremost, you know, when you employ staff members, make sure that you screen them properly. Make sure that you've done proper criminal checks, make sure that We've done proper credit checks and you now contact the previous employer to just understand the reasons for them leaving the, the previous um, business. Then also implement a zero tolerance policy in your business. Staff members must, must make sure that if they commit fraud, that they will be, their action will be taken and they will be prosecuted and investigated. Create a fraud awareness within your business. Get somebody in to come and do training to your staff members and make them aware that what is happening, what is the latest trends within fraud. Um, Cybercrime is, is a big problem at this point in time. Make sure that you've got a proper fraud response plan in place so that if, if something happens within your business, the management knows exactly how to deal with the matter. And then also very important is to have an open line within your business, an anonymous reporting mechanism within your business so that employees can anonymously report if they have found out that somebody has committed fraud or that this is a possible uh, instance of fraud. And that was Christos Neyman, National Director of Forensic Services at Mazars and Vice President of the IAFCI on the line talking to Lebuchang Mabange. 17.28 Central African Time. This is Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. After this, we're going to head on over to the news desk for your news headlines. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. I, Nelson Hodesasa Mandela, and I solemnly and sincerely promise that we'll always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it. And maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic. I, Matamera Siro Ramaphosa, swear that I will be faithful 
to the Republic of South Africa. So help me God. Channel Africa. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good afternoon, I'm Jolani Tulo making headlines. Sudan's deposed President Omar Bashir will be back in court in the capital Khartoum on Saturday for a trial on corruption charges. He appeared in court early in the day. Authorities in the DRC have confirmed a new case of the deadly Ebola virus in the remote militia-controlled town of Walikale, hundreds of kilometers away from where previous cases near the border with Uganda and Rwanda occurred. And finally, the U.S. has recorded 21 new measles cases last week for Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. The third smallest sovereign state on mainland South America after Uruguay and a surname is Guyana. Situated on South America's North Atlantic coast, it is bordered by Brazil to the south and southwest, Venezuela to the west, and Suriname to the east. It is also the only English-speaking country in South America. Five years ago, in 2014, Guyana established a high commission in uh, Pretoria, the first full diplomatic mission on the African continent since the closure of the country's diplomatic office in Zambia in August of 1991. But although Guyana's official presence in South Africa is fairly new, relations between the two countries actually span decades. More from Guyana's High Commissioner to Pretoria, Dr. Kenrick Hunter. The association between Guyana and South Africa started with the British Commonwealth because South Africa is part of that arrangement and we are also part of the Commonwealth. So we thought have a basis for working with South Africa in that grouping. Also, Guyana is a country with lots of unused or unknown of minerals. And South Africa is famous and well-known worldwide for having good technology in minerals and other things associated with that industry. So we thought of coming here to see how best we could learn and to find investors to come to Guyana, see what opportunities we can have and work together to build something. You are actually the first official representative from Guyana in South Africa. Mm -hmm. You've been here since 2016, but the ties, there was somebody else as from 2014. So that's about five years now. What are the current relations between the two countries, or is it still just very diplomatic at the moment? Well, for the moment, we started in 2014, and our first person here was, we call an assistant, until we had somebody accredited. In this case, I'm the first person who's been appointed High Commissioner here. So the initial phase of our work had to be just diplomatic, and I'm now branching out into the other areas. I'm looking for investments. I'm looking for cultural attachments. I'm looking for opportunities to build tourism. And down the road, hopefully, we can have some tourists going both sides across the Atlantic to visit South Africa, as well as to see what we have there. As you know, South Africa is famous for Kruger Park with all those animals, and you treat them well, you know how to maintain the, the stuff. We also have some different types of animals, but again, sharing knowledge in that area will help us as well. So that's one reason why I'm here. How well known is Guyana as a tourist destination? Well, it's not well known. First of all, most people, when they hear South Africa and South America, only think about either Brazil or Venezuela or Argentina, 
where the language thing is an issue. Spanish is the first thing that comes up. Brazil is Portuguese. In my neck of the woods, Guyana, we speak English. And that has been one of the difficulties. Are you in South America? You don't speak Spanish or Portuguese? Well, no, that's not my first language. But towards the border areas, people speak the languages that are close to the borders. So that's part of it. So tourism is not a big thing from South Africa at the moment. And we're now trying to develop that particular industry. What has been our initial economic activity has been agriculture. And it was basically sugarcane into sugar and rice and some diamonds and some gold. But now we want to go deeper. Recently, Exxon found a large quantity of oil. And so next year, we begin to export oil. Again, that's a new industry. We don't have anybody trained in the area. So we're starting from scratch. But it's a wonderful opportunity for us. And we're trying to find ways to make the full use of that opportunity. Hi, Commissioner, but you also told me that the ties with South Africa mm-hmm. actually goes back many decades right. since what was then well known as the apartheid era in yes. South Africa. Yes. Well, let me just give you a background. Guyana was part of a group of countries that worked to help end apartheid in South Africa. Initially, what we did, and the governments at the time in the 80s, gave passports to South Africans for them to travel. They also contributed money to help people travel to expose what was being done here and how things were to be changed. Also, we had a connection with Cuba because the flights from Cuba to Angola were too long and the planes couldn't make a one-hop stop. So what they asked and what they worked out was that they would stop in Guyana, refuel, then stop in Cape Verde, refuel, and then flew to Angola. So we were part of that arrangement. It was something that for us in that part of the world, we felt that apartheid was not something consistent with the free movement of people and everything else. Human dignity was critical for us. Having come out of a slavery background, we saw this as not being something that we should be a, see on the planet. And therefore, we took a firm position that that particular matter should come to an end. And so now that that has been over, we are now looking toward develop closer ties because we see there are things we can learn from each other as human beings, as people who are interested in developing things that we have and given to us in the natural environment that we have. And that long era post-apartheid, 94, when our wonderful mm-hmm. Madiba, Nelson Mandela, was here up until now, what happened in those years between the two countries and the cordial relations that go back so long ago? Yeah, well, there was nothing done here in South Africa. What they did was they worked with the United Nations, because that's where most of our work was concentrated. Because you remember, we didn't have a lot of resources to come this far. So they worked through the United Nations operations. We had a, an embassy in Zambia in the 70s and the 80s. That's where we first came to Southern Africa. And thereafter, we then came step by step to come now to South Africa. So even though we didn't have a direct function or direct relationship in the early part of the 90s, it's towards this new decade and new part of this century that we're now trying to develop. That was Guyana's High Commissioner to Pretoria, Dr. Kenrick Hunter, talking to Janine Kutzer. Women's Month commemorations continue in South Africa. The country commemorates Women's Month in August as a tribute to the more than 20,000 women who marched to the Union buildings on the 9th of August 1956 in protest against the extension of past laws to women. Jenny Hatton, published author, editor and teacher, conducted an interactive workshop on how to create a compelling narrative and story arc for a children's book. This is part of Hollard Insta Storybook, an initiative that harnesses social media to create much-needed storybooks for children. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlangu spoke to Jenny Hatton. I've written lots of textbooks, but it's uh, more difficult to get picture books published, and I've had three picture books published. I've had a, a play for nine-year-olds, nine to twelve-year-olds published, and I've written young adult books. I've been nominated now for the Sanlam Youth Literature 
awards. So I'm quite excited about that and looking forward to the results. Um, I've got lots of other picture books, but not all of them are published. I'm interested more in some of your publications that has to do with children. Mm-hmm. I'm keen to know what actually goes behind putting together a book for children. What are some of the things that you need to be cognizant of what are some of the things that you definitely have to include when you put out a book for kids? A children's book should be about the child should be able to see him or herself in the story. Uh, what really concerns me is um, our children have a lot of uh, books from the UK and from the US and not enough South African books. I think a South African child would like to see him or herself in the story so the character is very important the story itself is very important too the child must be able to relate to the story so it's the character and the story the plot i don't believe that a story must do too much teaching i think some stories can teach But uh, I think a story must entertain. Um, I think it's terribly important for children to sit on their mother's lap and be entertained by a story, to enjoy it, uh, to be able to look at the pictures and uh, to follow the story. I think stories are important too because they teach children to empathize. They teach them about the world. You can escape in a story. Stories are wonderful. You can learn so much more through a story than you can through factual uh, reading, through reading nonfiction. Um, Everybody loves a story, uh, adults as well as children. And uh, the sooner we start reading to children, the better. So if we read to them when they are uh, babies, there are baby books uh, where, that are made sometimes out of material and uh, sometimes out of hard card. And then we carry on reading to them uh, through their uh, infant years. And uh, we expose them to the world and we give them something that they can uh, escape to and learn from. What actually got you interested in writing and the publishing of books? Because there are women out there who are in this field, but it's just a handful. You can actually count the number of women who've successfully published children's books for that matter in South Africa. So I'm quite interested to know what is it about publishing that got you hooked? I've always loved reading and you read before you write. So it's very important to read. I was in education and uh, that's a good starting point. If you teach then uh, you learn to Uh, read stories, you learn about different books and I'm particularly keen on South African uh, books, South African children's books and South African um, books for uh, 9 to 12 year olds and books for young adults. With South Africa now commemorating Women's Month, what are some of the challenges that you are coming across, you know, as somebody who's written books and somebody who's published books, how easy is it or how much of a process is involved in actually getting a book published? It's actually very difficult to get a book published. It really is very difficult. Uh, In countries like the US and the UK, uh, you would get yourself an agent and the agent would try to sell your story or your book to publishers. In South Africa, we're lucky and we're unlucky because in South Africa, you can approach publishers directly. So you do your research, you go onto the internet, um, you find out who publishes children's books, you make your lists of those, you go into the bookstores, you have a look at the books that um, are being published by those particular publishers and you decide whether your book or your story is going to fit in uh, with the kind of books that that publisher is publishing. 
And then you prepare your uh, query letter. Um, you send off your query letter with your text to uh, various publishers. They say you should send to one publisher at a time. Um, and then you wait. And uh, it takes a couple of months and perhaps you hear from the publisher. And perhaps you don't hear from the publisher. It's a, a long process. If you're lucky enough to get a publisher, then the publisher will normally uh, employ their own illustrator and they take the book uh, into publication. And that was Jenny Hatton, published author, editor and teacher, speaking to Ntanta Matlangu. It's 17.44 right now. Let's cross on over to Tracy Boomgaard as she's going to let us know what is happening in the world of money. Here she is with your economics news. Thank you, Samora. Businesses and residents in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, say the power failure, which has entered its third week, is putting pressure on daily life. A fire ripped through the city's main power station earlier this month, destroying most of the equipment. While many rely on generators to keep the lights on, the source of power is unreliable as fuel stations find it difficult to supply enough gasoline to keep it going. God love Indofunta, a researcher, says even the internet supply is no longer regular. It is horrible. I am on my mission almost, almost 24 on 24, preparing my projects and uh, responding to mirrors from my partners. I have to go to where there are generators uh, in order to pay 500 francs to charge your machine or to charge your phone per hour. Spanish company Finergy has been ordered to pay over 800,000 U.S. dollars to Mozambican Petroleum Importing Agency, or Imopetro. This follows delays in delivering liquid fuels to Mozambique in June and July. The fuel supply contract was awarded to Finergy in May after a public tender launched in February. Under the terms of the contract, the company should supply Mozambique with petrol, diesel, kerosene and cooking gas for a six-month period from June to December 2019. The next deliveries of fuel will be crucial. If Finergy fails once again, then Imapetro may may terminate the contract. The Ghanaian government has announced a decline in unemployment in the country. The services sector constituted a major source of employment, accounting for 49%, followed by agriculture at 38%. The informal economy, however, continues to dominate the labour market. 85% of employment is in the informal sector, with the formal sector accounting for the remaining 15%, of which 7% are in the public sector and 8% in private formal sector. Kenyan traders are counting the loss after property of an unknown value was destroyed in a fire early on Monday. The cause of the fire, which started at a furniture shop in Gutarai, is yet to be established. Some furniture was salvaged, but the cost of the fire is yet to be determined. The 15th Gaming Regulators Africa Forum to look at new technologies the fourth industrial revolution has brought is underway in Pretoria, rather Port Elizabeth, South Africa. It's hosted by the Eastern Cape Province Economic Development Department under the theme Fourth Industrial Revolution Impact on Gaming in Africa. The forum focuses on the global economic shifts and the impacts on the gaming industry. Department spokesperson Mzukisi Solani says they're trying to explore ways to generate revenue for the province. The Eastern Cape economy, for instance, is dependent mainly on the auto manufacturing industry and tourism. But because of the global recess in terms of the economic performance, you are going to realize that the economic base of the Eastern Cape is urgently needing to diversify uh, its focus on other industries. And legalized gaming and gambling is that potential industry. The U.S. dollar is trading at 363.28 Nigerian Naira, 10.89 Botswana Pula, at 102.07 Kenyan Shilling, and at 13.07 Zambian Kwacha. 
In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you four Brazilian hail, 66.48 Russian rubles, 71.15 Indian rupee, 7.04 Chinese yuan, and at 15.26 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 82 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,509 and platinum at $847 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $59.28 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now it's time for your sporting news. Here is Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with swimming news. Morocco will be hosting some of South Africa's top aquatics talent when the swimming program of the 12th All-Africa Games take place from the 21st to the 24th of August in the capital city of Rabat. The South African swimming team topped the medal podium in 2015 with a total of 54 medals and will be looking to better that count with the likes of Tatlas Erasmus returning to the competition in the 50 and 100 meters freestyle as well as the 50 meters butterfly. Swimming South Africa Chief Executive Officer, CEO Sean Adrianse has more. The team is as best prepared as they can be, uh, noting that uh, there's two events happening concurrently over this time. It's the All-Africa Games and uh, the FINA Junior World Championships. So a lot of our promising youngsters also had to go to the Junior World Championships. So this is the best team we could feel at this time, noting also that we've had a few of our uh, top swimmers, you know, uh, taking a break due to minor injuries, uh, the likes of Tatiana and uh, uh, Schoonmaker as well as Chad Leclo. But uh, otherwise, we've got uh, the strongest team we could feel, and uh, we think the team is ready to perform at this event. President of the Nigeria Olympic Committee, Habu Ahmed Kumel, is confident that Team Nigeria will top the overall medals table at the ongoing All-Africa Games in Rabat, Morocco. Channel Africa's Tony Ubani reports. That engineer Habu Kumel, President of Nigeria Olympic Committee, NOC, has expressed confidence in the ability of Nigeria topping the overall medals table at the end of the 12th Africa Games in Rabat, Morocco. Speaking during the welcome ceremony of Nigeria's contingents to the Games Village, Goumet charged the Atlas to be of good behavior and good ambassadors of the country while thanking the government of Morocco for welcoming the team, stating that Nigeria has a good working relationship with the Moroccan government, noting that Nigeria is here to win the Games and win it clean. The Nigeria contingent were admitted to the Games Village in a colorful ceremony yesterday in Rabat, Morocco. The contingent of about 300 in number were welcomed by Yusuf Uliwaza, the mayor of African Games Village. He thanked the Nigerian government for releasing the athletes to participate in the Games and welcomed everyone as the country's green-white green was hoisted and, of course, you know, fluttered out there in the sky of Morocco. Nigeria men and women's beach volleyball teams have qualified for the quarterfinals event at the All-Africa Games in Morocco. Tony Obani reports. The Nigerian men and women teams have qualified for the quarterfinals of the beach volleyball event at the ongoing Africa Games in Rabat, Morocco. Nigeria's men team beat Egypt 2-1, 21-15, 13-21, 15 while the women's team defeated Gambia 2-0, 21-12, 21-9, to book spots in their respective quarterfinals. Nigeria's women's team will face Kenya tomorrow in the quarterfinals after losing 2-1, 21-13, 22-24 and 15-12 in the group stages. The men's team will face South Africa in the quarterfinals tomorrow. Almost all the matches are just been between Nigeria and South Africa. And the head coach of the Nigeria beach volleyball teams, Kyle De Agilore, said the team have crossed the first stage, which is to qualify for the quarterfinals. 
In football news, the South African teenager Tashrik Matthews will spend the season on loan in Sweden, having signed for Helsingborg's IF this past week. Matthews, who is on the books of German giants Borussia Dortmund, is excited about the opportunity and is looking forward to playing senior football this season. This will be Matthews' second loan spell since the former Ajax Cape Town youth player joined Dortmund, having spent the last season on loan in Holland at FC Utrecht, where he stayed for their youth teams well yeah i'm very excited to to have this opportunity it's also it's uh, really good for me because it's you know first in football it's a great coach it's a nice team and i'm very excited to start uh, with uh, more senior football Matthews, who will turn 19 in September, says he is adapting well to life in Europe and that that has been made easier by having his Belgium-based agent, former Bafana Bafana player Lance Davids, close by. And also, yeah, I'm adapting really good to life in Europe. I mean, I'm much more comfortable now. Uh, it's been really good and also Lance and the guys the on-target company also helping me really well to get along, you know. So it's been really good, yeah, and I'm just very excited to start for the team. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for programming news and sport from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto N-E-T-O Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. We're back again after an hour at 1900 hours Central African time. But keep in touch with the, the show. You can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327. And you can tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Moving On by Asa. We'll see you again later. I had to run away and hide. Something happened in the middle of the night If I came inside without a sound Suddenly my life was turning upside down All that I could feel was pain And strangers came and took my soul away Like a deadly hurricane I know my life will never be the same So long when you cry for help I know I can't change the past But as the river keeps flowing I'll keep on moving on I'm hoping for a better life Praying that nobody's story Turns out like mine The only thing I know is fear Even those with good intentions Disappear Pain and strangers came and took my soul away Like a deadly hurricane I know my life will never be the same Where do you go when you're by yourself? Who comes along when you cry for help? I know I can't change the past the river keeps flowing I'll keep on moving on Where do you go when you're by yourself? Who comes along when you cry for help? I know I can't change the past But as the river keeps flowing I'll keep on
Andire morning.